Welcome to Psychiatry Explored. The guests on this episode have been pre-screened for conflicts of interest and are not presenting material prepared by industry. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. These opinions are meant for education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Psychiatry Explored. My name is Candice Chan. I'm a third year at Oregon Health and Science University, and I'll be applying into psychiatry coming this summer. Um, So today we're going to be talking all about electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Last year during my anesthesia elective, I actually got to witness ECT um, and I found it to be really interesting. So today we're going to be breaking ECT down, um, kind of discussing what is it, when it's indicated, its side effects, controversial opinions, and also the anesthesia behind ECT. And then Kathleen Daly-Jensen will also be co-hosting this podcast with me. Um, So Kathleen, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Kathleen Daly-Jensen. I'm a third-year medical student at OHSU as well, and I am planning on applying into anesthesia this coming summer. Interestingly enough, I was exposed to ECT on my psych rotation, um, and it really kind of piqued my interest. And even though I didn't want to pursue psychiatry as a career, I was interested in how anesthesia and um, psychiatry overlap. I also, I I think the main thing that I'm interested in, or one of the main things is just like how over the years, um, ECT has kind of been more accepted or less accepted and how that has changed with the use of anesthesia. Awesome. That's so funny. We both were exposed to ECT on opposite rotations. Okay. And Kathleen and I will be joined today by three amazing attendings. We have two psychiatrists, Dr. Anne Fang and Dr. Veronica Hawker, as well as an anesthesiologist, Dr. Natalia Guzman-Seda. Dr. Natalia Guzman-Seda, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us your experience with ECT? Sure. So I'm Dr. Guzman-Seda. I'm an attending anesthesiologist at OHSU. I became interested in ECT as part of my curiosity of the overlap when it comes to mental health and anesthesia. This started happening, yes, with the COVID pandemic, being in New York City, being a resident back then, but also I have a subspecialty in oncoanesthesiology, so I mostly take care of cancer patients, and there's a lot of uh, comorbidities when it comes to mental health in a cancer diagnosis and the progression, chemotherapy, undergoing cancer surgery, the prognosis and existential distress, for example, that some patients experience. So I became very interested in the in the overlap of mental health specifically um, and anesthesiology. So I started to become more curious and participating in taking care of these patients uh, for their procedures. That's so interesting. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. And then Dr. Hawker, did you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yes. Um, my name is Dr. Veronica Hawker. Uh, My first interest in ECT started when I was a medical student like you. I was on a sub-I in geriatric psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, and I saw some phenomenal uh, responses to ECT um, and wondered why it wasn't used more often, frankly. Um, It actually piqued my interest in psychiatry as well. And so then it was necessary for me to study ECT when I went into residency at Duke which has a very robust ECT training program. Uh, And so I did an elective in my fourth year uh, in ECT. And again, saw many really impressive cases that turned around. So, yeah. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, it looks like Dr. Fang, is she back? No, I don't know why I responded sounds good when she's not on. <laughs> okay. Um, I did want to ask, like, while I guess while we're waiting for Dr. Fang to log back on, Dr. Hogger, what's the um, kind of training like um, for to get ECT certified? Well, I feel like I was privileged to be in a place where it was so accessible. Uh, I would go in um, one day a week on Friday, uh, very early in the morning, and I would do various things among the team. Um, one was, you know, I would do kind of the pre-evaluation where you're uh, asking mental status exam, madras, um, getting some updates. I would assist with the treatments and then also eventually just man the machine essentially um, and kind of run it with the attending present uh, and then document. And um, yeah, and I did that for, uh, I think it was like uh, over about a year, my fourth year. And then uh, we also had a group that would meet every Wednesday regarding new consults and discussing each case uh, to see if it was worth moving forward with ECT, how we would change treatment. And then otherwise we would also do consults on the inpatient unit and in outpatient setting. Awesome. You're so lucky that you got to do that in your fourth year and have that exposure. Um, Dr. Fang, are you able to speak now? Can you hear me? Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so Dr. Ann Fang, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Ann. I'm the director of ECT service here at OHSU. Um, I went to med school at OHSU like you guys, and then residency at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And during my last year of residency, I did my um, visiting ECT fellowship at Duke where Dr. Hawker trained. So, and I've been back here at OHSU for the last five and a half years, almost six years um, in my current job. So thanks for having me. Of course. So did you two know each other during that time? Did you cross paths? We didn't, but I'm really glad that I met Veronica um, when she started working at Unity and is helping us out so much with all of the um, Unity ECT consult patients. And, you know, we have a lot of complex, complicated cases coming from Unity, so. Mm -hmm. I bet. It was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, without further ado, um, thank you all for being here. We're going to dive into some cases and just learn more about ECT. Um, so the first case that we're going to do starts off with Sarah, who's a 38-year-old writer who presents to her psychiatrist's office with persistent severe depressive symptoms despite trying multiple treatments. She has been diagnosed with major depressive disorder and has tried several SSRIs and SNRIs with no significant improvement. She has also been attending therapy sessions regularly for the past two years, but has not seen any improvement in her mood or motivation. She has lost her job as a writer due to her to her inability to focus and lack of motivation. After considering several options, including switching to a different antidepressant or adding a mood stabilizer, her psychiatrist suggests electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Um, so Dr. Fang, just in simple terms, what is electroconvulsive therapy or ECT? Yeah, so ECT is one of the few instances in life, I think, where you can say to somebody, 
Hey, I'm really glad that you had a great seizure. And, you know, you can say to a resident or fellow, you know, you did a great job inducing that seizure in this patient. Um, so as you said, ECT stands for electroconvulsive therapy. And as the name suggests, we apply a electric stimulus to induce a seizure in a patient while they're under anesthesia. And it's a very safe and effective treatment for a number of psychiatric and medical conditions. And Dr. Hawker, when do you recommend patients get ECT? So what type of patients? Well, usually ECT is explored when people have tried multiple antidepressants and there's been no response. So one of the kind of number one um, consults we get are treatment-resistant depression. There's different kind of features to a depression that can sometimes speak to responsiveness in ECT. Um, oftentimes, a psychotic depression uh, is nicely responsive to ECT, as well as depression with neurovegetative features. Um, however, it doesn't necessarily need to go into either one of those categories. Uh, just kind of treatment-resistant depression can respond. One uh, amazing way of using ECT is also in treatment of catatonia. This has the most profound uh, response to ECT, and I'm not sure if uh, the audience knows what catatonia is, but it's generally a kind of like a symptom of an underlying severe mental illness, and it uh, results in people essentially withdrawing, becoming very still, uh, mute. They can um, have decreased intake. It can actually get to the point where it's life-threatening, and so that uh, responds very well to ECT, sometimes within a couple of treatments. Uh, there are other, very, various other indications for ECT as well. Uh, one is if somebody is on antidepressant medication, there's some sort of medical comorbidity that doesn't allow them to continue that. It can spare or uh, use of certain medications. There's also bipolar depression, which can respond to ECT. Bipolar mania can also respond to ECT, and sometimes it can be used as an adjunct for antipsychotics and psychotic disorders. Uh, however, not only psychiatric conditions can be treated with ECT. It can be used in Parkinson's, uh, which often has some psychiatric uh, symptoms as well, but it can also help improve movement. There was a case of autoimmune encephalitis that I remember very clearly uh, in my psychiatry rotation at um, Duke that uh, responded very well to ECT. However, that, that one had catatonic features. Thank you, Dr. Hawker. Just a follow-up question. Is there, um, are there rules about the age of the patients that are allowed to get ECT? Can children get it? Can adolescents or elderly patients get it? Is that, what sort of parameters are put on it? Well, essentially anybody can get ECT if it's indicated. You would think that there's some risks to it that would prevent elderly from getting ECT. However, that's a very large population that responds very well to ECT, um, the geriatric depressed population. You have to manage various medical comorbidities if needed um, during the treatment. And on the other side of the spectrum, some adolescents can get ECT and that's really dependent upon how severe their illness is. Uh, catatonia is definitely an indication among uh, younger folks for ECT. Uh, however, we do, and I think that we'll get into this, um, get into uh, 
issues with consent and essentially who can assent, uh, consent to this treatment. Yeah. And I imagine there's also some comorbidities. They probably have to pass, um, get approval from to be put under anesthesia as well. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later as well. That's interesting to know it can be applied so broadly to um, different medical conditions and that actually can be used in a wide variety of populations. What I really want to know, and I, I want to ask Dr. Fang this, is what does EC do, ECT do to the brain that makes it so effective for patients? Do we happen to know that or? Yeah. Um, so we don't know the exact mechanism of action that's not been elucidated, but we do know that it most likely works through a number of different mechanisms. So first, we know that it increases the release and enhances the transmission of multiple neurotransmitters, and those include dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. And you know those might sound familiar to medical students because those are also the targets of our oral antidepressants. So that makes sense that ECT will work through that mechanism for its antidepressant effect. Um, there's also um, this neurotrophic hypothesis that um, suggests that ECT can increase synaptogenesis, so it enhances neuroconnectivity, and um, sometimes you know people can have some brain changes that's caused by severe chronic depression. And it's thought that ECT might be reversing some of those atrophic brain changes as a result of the depression. There's also an increase in release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And some studies have shown that there's increase in volume or the volume of gray matter in certain regions of the brain. And so it also enhances GABA transmission and so that we think that's what accounts for its anti-convulsant properties. So again, lots of different mechanisms why ECT is effective. Mm, that's so fascinating. It sounds like there's a lot of different things that are working to benefit patients. Exactly, yeah. It's also one of those things that if it works and it's not harming the patient, then give it a try. In terms of that, I guess, Dr. Feng, is ECT dangerous? Can it harm a patient? What are the common side effects that yeah. we sometimes see? No, thanks for asking that question, because I think that's one of the most common misconceptions about ECT is, is this dangerous? So I want to be very clear that ECT is a safe and effective medical procedure. I think we talked about the various ways it acts on the brain for depression and for catatonia. And I do think it's important to say that it does not cause damage to your brain. I think, you know, sometimes we see in the past, especially portrayals of ECT being like scary or even maybe barbaric. But I, I mean, I feel like most recent depictions of ECT in TV shows like Homeland, it's a little more accurate. And I think luckily a lot of our patients are good about doing their own research and kind of educating themselves about ECT before coming to the initial consult service. But you know, like any medical procedure, it does have side effects and risks. So the most common side effects are, you know, people might wake up from the treatment with a headache, muscle ache, um, nausea, memory issues. And again, we have medications that we use, you know, if we have headaches, we give you you know, IV Tordal for muscle aches, you can give Tordal too or Tylenol. Um, we have IV Zofran for nausea. I think some of the things that 
could be, you know, higher risks during the treatment is obviously air, any airway complications. If someone has like really severe obstructive sleep apnea, or if there's cardiac risks, because, you know, ECT can dramatically increase someone's heart rate and blood pressure during the seizure. Um, although that's a transient effect, people's heart rate and blood pressure will come back down to their baseline. Um, but if you imagine someone who already have a lot of cardiac comorbidities, maybe history of MI, stroke, irregular heartbeats, they might not tolerate that cardiac risk very well. And in patients who have a history of seizure disorder or um, you know epilepsy, they might be at risk for prolonged seizures. And, and some patients might be also at risk for what's called post-ictal delirium, which is kind of a delirium that presents after a seizure or what we call post-ictal agitation. So those are kind of the common risks. But again, a lot of the risks we can manage and a lot of things we have medications to help with. Just a question that came to mind regarding kind of induce, uh, kind of revealing underlying seizure disorders. Is that, uh, has that ever happened to you where um, you, there's no history of a seizure disorder for this patient, um, no family history, and this is how they find out? Or is that, do you do a pretty thorough history to try to prevent that? So I just want to be clear, ECT does not increase your risk of having a seizure outside of ECT. Does that make sense? Because it actually has an anti-convulsant property by enhancing the GABA transmission. And so okay. that's why we use ECT for treatment refractory status patients, mm -hmm. for example. So you're not being put at higher risk for having a seizure by undergoing ECT. Got it. Thank you for clarifying. That's really great information. Dr. Hawker, are there any absolute contraindications to ECT? No, there's no absolute contraindications to ECT, but we will, uh, as Dr. Fang noted, uh, go through pre-anesthesia evaluations and know any medical comorbidity that would need to be treated prior to ECT. We'd want AFib to be in fairly good control. You know, uh, in the past, uh, space-occupying lesions were considered a contraindication uh, for ECT, but everything is a risk-benefit discussion. You know, if somebody is having extreme symptoms of depression that result in suicidal behavior or they have malignant catatonia, that's, you know, that risk, that, that the benefit of treating that may outweigh the risk of uh, whatever medical complication can come out of that. So it's, it's definitely a conversation to have with the patient, but generally I'll reiterate this. It's a very safe procedure for most. That's how I observed it in the patient who was choosing to get it is the benefit of getting the treatment far outweighed the risks associated with it because the state that this patient was in was, you know, pretty desperate for something to help. So definitely a really powerful and useful tool. Dr. Fang, you kind of, I think, touched on this, but when you said like, this is one of the only times when people get kind of rewarded for inducing some electricity in people's brain in a way. So like, do you know how this even came about historically? Like, how did who decided, okay, let's like induce some seizures in people and maybe it'll help them? Yeah, I think what I remember hearing is historically people noticed that patients with epilepsy perhaps had a lower incidence of depression. And um, that's how I think 
the idea maybe first came about. Um, obviously, there's been many changes that's been made over the decades we had ECT um, that made the procedure a lot safer. Again, the use of anesthesia, um, especially using succinylcholine, it helped prevent a lot of injuries to bones and muscles um, during the seizure. We put bite blocks in to prevent injuries to people's teeth, their tongue, the side of their cheeks um, from accidentally biting their lips during the seizure. Um, we also have kind of EEG monitoring so we can see when the seizure ends and we can intervene if the seizure is prolonged. And we also use, you know, continuous EKG monitoring, pulse ox, blood pressure monitoring, all of these interventions to make the treatment a lot safer for us. Mm, okay. Sounds like there are a lot of good safety precautions put in place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Hawker, um, from your experience, how does ECT compare to other interventional um, treatments such as TMSS or esketamine? So ECT has been around a lot longer than uh, any of those other treatments. We do know that it's extremely effective for the conditions that I discussed before. Uh, and in comparison to TMS, it seems as though ECT is more effective. Given severity of illness too, you'd want something with a more robust response um, as fast as you can. And that seems to be the case with ECT. And, and ketamine, um, and, and not only that, there's, there's more that can be treated with ECT. Uh, going to ketamine, that's mainly indicated for, yes, treatment-resistant depression with suicidal ideation, but that's about it. You know, it's not used for catatonia, it's not used for the other um, indications, and again, it's new. The response to ketamine oftentimes seems very short-lived, and if somebody does respond, uh, it does also require repeat tre repeated treatments. The side effects are different with, with each one of these treatments as well, and where where they're performed is also uh, different. TMS is, is most often in the outpatient setting and does require frequent treatments has less cognitive side effects. So some people might want to try that first, and that's reasonable. Ketamine has various other side effects that, you know, such as uh, the discomfort during the ketamine uh, treatment that some people experience with dissociation or, you know, they, there can be high blood pressure there too. Um, for something that has lasted this long and demonstrated such efficacy, uh, I would recommend for anybody experiencing treatment-resistant depression to consider ECT uh, first. And sometimes I would hope that people would consider it earlier. So a follow-up question, I, I heard you comparing the treatments based on like how often you need to get them. And that's something we haven't touched on yet. Um, how often do patients need to get ECT and how long does it take before these treatments become effective? Well, after a consult, we start somebody on an index course, and that can be either three times a week or two times a week for, I mean, generally a total of 12 treatments, but oftentimes we see responses by six to nine treatments. For certain conditions like catatonia, that can even respond within just a couple of treatments, which is amazing. Once there is response to that treatment, essentially remission of the depression, then you would perhaps discuss maintenance ECT. Uh, and that really is dependent upon the patient, 
whether or not they want to try the maintenance course or whether or not they just like to try to do without it. And then if the depression or whatever their experiences resurges, they can come back around and do another index course. If you're doing maintenance, uh, oftentimes people taper it to weekly for a few weeks and then go to two weeks and then see how far out they can do. Sometimes people do like that instead of uh, taking medication again, like certain medications again. Also, another little caveat with uh, the, the treatment course is really monitoring how they're doing with the side effects. Cognitive side effects can occur fairly often. There's usually pretty good recovery in between ECT sessions and further time out from the course, but that may be an indication to, to space out treatments. And so sometimes if somebody ha is having a good amount of cognitive side effects, but they are responding, you can space it out to maybe once a week and it will prolong the index course, but uh, would be worthwhile for that patient if there's significant improvement. So we kind of talked about how ECT is indicated for a lot of different patients who probably are in a lot of different mental states and have different different capacities. Um, so Dr. Fang, how do you consent a patient for ECT whose disease is so advanced that they may not have insight into their disease? Yeah, that's a very good question because I think as you can imagine, a lot of our patients with severe depression, maybe with psychotic features or severe catatonia, are really not able to consent. Um, and so what we do is called a capacity evaluation, and that allows us to determine whether or not we think the patient have the capacity to give what we call informed consent. So are they able to take in the information? Are they able to remember the information? Are they able to weigh the risks and benefits in a logical, reasonable way to arrive at a reasonable decision for their care? And oftentimes, as you can imagine, when their disease is pretty advanced, they might not be able to do so. And so each state have their own regulations and kind of laws about what we do um, when the patient themselves lacks capacity for informed consent. And so states kind of vary depending on kind of how strict their laws are against the use of ECT. In the state of Oregon, for example, just because you're someone's legal guardian doesn't automatically grant you the authority to consent to ECT on the patient's behalf. And so in the state of Oregon, the legal guardian would petition the court for a special ECT clause in the legal guardianship paperwork that explicitly states that the judge have given them this special authority to consent to ECT on the patient's behalf. That's interesting. Sounds like there's a very lengthy and or not too lengthy, but a detailed process to make sure that um, you're acting in the best interest of the patient and um, checking to make sure they have capacity. Yeah, definitely. I think it can be a lengthy and expensive process. As you can imagine, um, it requires a lot of resource for someone to first become a legal guardian and then maybe you know have this additional step of petitioning the court for that ECT clause to be added to the legal guardianship paperwork. So it is a barrier for some of our patients, unfortunately. While we're on the topic of barriers to ECT, why is ECT not more available for patients these days? What sort of barriers are in front of patients, whether it be insurance approval or cult cultural acceptance or scheduling conflicts? What kind of things do you 
Dr. Fang and Dr. Hawker, have you noticed stands in the way? Well, I think stigma is one consideration there. There's a lot of misinformation about ECTs, so it requires a lot of education on behalf of the provider who's recommending ECT to uh, discuss the procedure with the patient in a realistic manner, right? I think that there's even some kind of mental health providers or providers out there in general who, you know, are a little hesitant to go to ECT until after various other treatments have been explored. Another, you mentioned insurance too. It can be expensive out of pocket. It requires an anesthesiologist, a psychiatrist, anesthesia monitoring. And so if insurance does not cover it, then it's not available to that patient. And then that also speaks to maybe disparities in who can actually get ECT, right? Those with resources may be able to more readily access ECT. I can also say that there's, you know, scheduling conflicts, um, space conflicts. Uh, You know, you need the space to do ECT. You need an anesthesiologist. Uh, You need the monitoring equipment. And so these procedures are often done either in a specialized ECT suite or within like a PACU or near kind of a surgical center. And so that is also a limiting factor in scheduling, right? You know, uh, a lot of people, it's a commitment. Um, And so to make three appointments a week at six o'clock in the morning is challenging. And to put everything in place to ensure safety could also be challenging. Some people don't have supports in order to um, have safe transport to and from ECT or to monitor them afterwards. So that is often a barrier I run into um, and why sometimes we do a full index course within the inpatient setting so that, you know, we could be their support for that time being. I don't know if Dr. Fang has anything else to add to why ECT is not more available. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I definitely think that, you know, the availability of providers too, I think we have ECT available in the Portland metro area here in the state of Oregon. And then outside of that in Eugene, but nothing in Southern Oregon so far or Central Oregon. So it's it's hard to find, first of all, a provider who's able to do it and also a facility where there's anesthesia available, PACU setting, and you know, it requires a lot of support like Dr. Hogwarts was mentioning for the patient to have kind of the logistic details worked out for them to be able to commit to the treatment. Thank you both for that insight. So we're going to start with our second case with Michael, a 27-year-old adult male who presents to the psychiatric emergency department with persistent catatonia despite being on high-dose benzodiazepines. Michael is exhibiting classic signs of catatonia, including mutism, immobility, and posturing. He also has severe rigidity and resistance to movement. Given the lack of improvement with benzodiazepines, the team recommends ECT as a treatment option. Michael is hesitant about ECT due to concerns about possible side effects and stigma associated with the procedure. However, the team explains that ECT is safe and effective treatment for catatonia, and Michael eventually agrees to undergo a course of ECT sessions. So, uh, Dr. Guzman Seda, how has the introduction of anesthesia to ECT changed the treatment's social acceptance and the use of it overall? I think that's a, a really good question. And I, I would say that 
unfortunately, it although it's widely available, there's still a lot of stigma surrounding ECT in general. Part of the reason is associated with um, what we see on TV or what we've seen in some movies, as recently as uh, Stranger Things, for example, in which uh, we have Eleven's uh, mom being undergoing uh, what seems to be something similar to ECT without any type of sedation or, or anesthetic or monitoring really, or adequate monitoring involved. And it leaves her pretty much just repeating these um, couple of words uh, for years after that. So although it's uh, part of the standard of care nowadays to have uh, an anesthesiologist collaborating with our uh, colleagues for the procedure, I, I wouldn't say that it has uh, changed how society uh, in general uh, perceives ECT to be done uh, nowadays. And so on that note, you described a scenario in Stranger Things where they had nothing, no anesthetics and no monitoring. Can you give us a picture of your role on the day of ECT and what sort of monitors and medications you're giving to the patients and why? Certainly. So in general, when we do any type of case, we uh, go over the patient's medical history. We also go over medications, uh, any past uh, history of undergoing anesthesia, any past family history of undergoing anesthesia. We try to identify potential risk factors to the patient undergoing that procedure, uh, risk factors of that patient undergoing uh, anesthesia, in this case, general anesthesia. And uh, we try to figure out what medications and monitoring is appropriate for that particular case, specifically in the case of a patient who is gonna undergo ECT. We take into consideration that the goal of the procedure itself is to induce a short seizure in a controlled setting. As such, we monitor the patient's oxygenation, heart rate, blood pressure. We also have uh, EEG uh, to monitor the onset of the seizure, the duration of the seizure, and the end of the seizure. And we have also medications readily available to make any potential intervention if the seizure is prolonged or if we encounter any problems while doing the case. And on that note, we also have resuscitative equipment to secure the airway to make any potential interventions or manipulations of the patient's breathing, of the patient's uh, blood pressure, heart rate, as well as really trying to accomplish quick post-operative recovery. And the reason why I mention this is because as our colleagues have correctly mentioned, sometimes people experience some soreness, some muscle pain, and the introduction of muscle relaxants uh, sometimes comes into play to try to make the recovery process for that patient a little easier. So is the patient paralyzed during ECT? Do you use a paralytic? We, we do use a paralytic because there is a, a risk, for example, of the patient uh, getting injured in the process of having um, that uh, short-lived seizure, and we wouldn't want that. Um, we also pr uh, put a 
guard so that the patient doesn't bite their tongue, lips, etc. But generally speaking, if there's no contraindication to using a paralytic, we always look again at the risk benefits right, of, of using a paralytic. But if there's no reason to not use it, we, we do try to use it to minimize the side effect of, of having some muscle soreness after the procedure. What? Yeah, and with the paralytic, how are you managing the patient's airway during the procedure? So because it's a very, very short seizure, usually what we do is that we will provide supplemental oxygen. We can mask ventilate the patient, pre-oxygenate them, and because we are literally experts on managing the airway. We can always intubate and put an endotracheal tube. But generally speaking, putting an endotracheal tube is not always necessary. Definitely providing supplemental oxygen to the patient and having monitoring for their breathing and oxygenation levels, as well as, like I said, heart rate. We do EKG monitoring, blood pressure monitoring. All of these things are under our, our constant supervision and we are always ready to intervene if we were to need to to secure the airway. Well, usually what we do is that we will go ahead and assist the ventilation of the patient through bag mask ventilation um, until the patient recovers from the muscle weakness. And I guess, I don't think we've stated this blatantly yet, but like how long between when you induce anesthesia and the paralytic, they have the short seizure and then they are, the paralytic is reversed. It's usually a very, very quick case. Uh, generally speaking, in a day, we can do a dozen of these cases easily. So the duration that the patient's under anesthesia is very short. And let me just mention one more thing that I think is incredibly important to address because I, I just want to make sure we, we discuss this. The patient is not conscious when they are paralyzed. Um, they are under general anesthesia. So the paralytic is not the only medication we use. Um, we also use hypnotic medications. We have a number of medications that we use in general anesthesia, but because we're trying to facilitate this procedure and the goal is to induce a short seizure, we tend to use medications that will not prevent that from happening because some of the anesthetics that we use actually will not sort of permit a seizure from happening because actually they can be used to stop a seizure in, in cases like status epilepticus, right? Uh, which ultimately, if you have status epilepticus and nothing works, you put them under general anesthesia, right? So we tailor which drugs we use. Some of the drugs that are commonly used as hypnotic agents are are barbiturates such as methohexital. We've had encounter situations in which there are shortages of methohexital, which is a, a barbiturate that works in the GABA-A receptor. Sometimes we can use etomidate, and sometimes we can even use ketamine uh, as part of our anesthetics. Um, but the patient is under anesthesia in a state of unconsciousness where they don't feel or are aware of what's going on. Thank you for that detailed uh, explanation. I think in my mind, and I've been around a lot of anesthesia, it was still kind of a mystery exactly how it worked with ECT. If it is determined that ECT needs to be aborted for some reason, um, whether it be the seizure, seizure is going on too long, I'm not sure if you three can highlight other reasons why you might need to abort the procedure. How do you go about doing that? There's, I, 
there may be situations in which the patient becomes hemodynamically unstable. Let's say that um, there's there's very few absolute contraindications. There's actually no absolute contraindications to ECT, but there's a few relative contraindications to ECT. Usually, when we proceed in a case that has a relative contraindication, we always have a risk-benefit discussion with our colleagues when it comes to that particular case and that particular patient and how the risk of uh, having the, I'm sorry, and how the benefits of having the procedure outweigh the risks of the patient undergoing the procedure. But of course, as part of the planning that happens when we are doing these uh, cases, we discuss the possibility of having to um, abort the procedure of having to stop completely. And it's usually a discussion that we have ahead of time. And in those cases, it may be hemodynamic instability. It, it may be that we're seeing some EKG changes. It may be that the blood pressure is, is, is really uncontrolled and, and we need to stop. But those cases are, are, not, are not very common because usually as anesthesiologists, we are trained to handle hemodynamic changes that happen during procedures and surgery. So we are equipped and able to, to manage uh, these issues as they arise. In addition, it's, it's such a short procedure that most patients, even if they have increase in blood pressure, increase in heart rate, um, or other changes, they, the, there's not going to be significant long-term impact to the patient. And just to clarify, is it like 30 seconds long or is it five minutes long or something? It's like, it's like 30 seconds long. Usually the patient is, is under for a few minutes. Um, the, the seizure is, is, is not a very long seizure at all. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying. And what exactly does like the post-ictal state look like after ECT and how long does it last around? Um, it depends on the patient. Uh, most patients, uh, if they are post-ictal, it will last for an hour or to a few hours, but patients tend to recover pretty fast. It's, sometimes it's actually hard to kind of tell, like, is it some of the anesthetic still, or is it like really a post-ictal state? And usually time and symptomatic uh, presentation will, will tell the difference, but it doesn't take very long for patients to recover. Interesting. Well, those are all the questions that we have about our two cases. Thank you all for taking so much time to answer all of our many questions about ECT um, and for giving us more insight into this elusive and interesting procedure. I feel like I learned so much from this talk and I'm sure all of our listeners will be very interested. I feel like we broke a lot of stigmas and certain stereotypes down. We wanted to ask one final question to each of you. And that would be if each of you could say one thing to individuals or patients who are hesitant about ECT, what would you say to them? I would say, like, it's okay to feel hesitant. I think most of our patients are anxious about ECT. It's very normal to feel anxious about ECT, especially before your first treatment. And I think part of our job is to really help patients assess the risks versus benefits and to see if ECT is the right option for them. I think both Dr. Hoggers and I are pretty open and honest when we don't think it's the right options and we will tell you and we do say no to our patients and to our colleagues who refer patients to us. 
And so um, we only recommend it if we truly think that it's worth the trial. So I think if I had one thing I could say to someone who's considering ECT, I would say it works and it's safe. If you are concerned, definitely bring it up and talk to your provider. It is completely normal. It is completely expected to be scared and hesitant of undergoing a procedure, especially if it involves anesthesia. But nowadays, anesthesia is incredibly safe. It's effective. It's uh, practiced and done very frequently. And I would just bring all the questions that you have to your anesthesiologist so that you feel comfortable and safe moving forward with your procedure. Those were very good uh, recommendations. I'm not sure how much more I have to add, um, except to make sure that you get your information from reputable sources when you're learning about ECT. Uh, it shouldn't be from a movie. It should be from experts, even from people who may have uh, had ECT or family members who have seen it worked for their family members. That's one thing I would say to them, um, other than what has already been said uh, by Dr. Fang and Dr. Guzman. On that note, Dr. Hawker, are there any resources online that we could provide in the description of this podcast that people could access that are accessible and kind of break it down in an accessible way? Actually, I think uh, Dr. Fang had yeah. a question. Um, yes, the Dartmouth video. The Dartmouth video, if you just go on YouTube and put in Dartmouth ECT, it is a accurate portrayal of a medical procedure. Um, you know, it's not sensationalized. It also kind of talks you through, this is what we use ECT for. This is what the procedure looks like from beginning to end. So um, I know that during COVID, it might be hard for medical students to actually observe ECT in person. And so that's where I've been pointing people to. Awesome. Thank you so much for that resource. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched on that is really important to tell our listeners or anything, any points you want to kind of reemphasize? If not, I also have just a question out of curiosity, but how often does ECT get covered by insurance? Is it like fairly common or is it fairly uncommon, total case by case? Yeah, ECT is generally covered by insurance. Um, I would say very commonly covered um, and, you know, it's a very safe and effective treatment. And so I think insurance companies are recognizing that as well, that, you know, it's an effective treatment for patients who otherwise may have prolonged psychiatric hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. Awesome. It's good to hear. So thank you all for all of your wise words. This was a really, really good topic and talk, and I'm excited for it to get out to our listeners. Yeah, thank you all so much. Thanks so much for organizing this and for all of your excellent questions. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm happy to, to collaborate. Thanks everyone for listening today. Uh, we are always looking for feedback. And so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, please feel free to email us at psychiatryexplored at gmail.com. Um, thank you and have a great rest of your day.